Hello, my name is Joshua. Welcome to Our Foundations. Today we are getting back into the field of education, but before we do so, I have a few things to say first. Number one, if you notice the sound effects in the background, my home studio has been taken over by baby chicks, and so you will get a little bit of background noise here, and so I apologize if that gets a little annoying. I'm sorry. But that's the reality. It would be way too much of a pain to move it all. The box doesn't fit through the door. It's, yeah. So we're just going to have a little bit of background sound effects, and it'll be nice. So second thing is that we still have our t-shirt contest going on. So if you want a free t-shirt, then go to the website or go to the Patreon page and see what you need to do for that. And it's pretty simple, and you send me an email, and your name will be put in. It's not that big of a deal. So if you want to do that, then please do. I would appreciate it. The final thing I'll mention is a bit of a disclaimer here that with everything that I'm saying in today's episode, do not think that I am saying that you are stupid or I am stupid or the majority of Americans are just stupid in terms of not being intelligent. I would say, though, that most Americans, and I would assume most people around the world, are probably ignorant of specific things and have not been taught specific concepts and philosophies and ways of thinking. And that's what I'm focusing on. I am not saying that people are just stupid. I was actually talking with a principal at a local school a few days ago, and uh, standardized testing came up, and we were talking about that and how that basically just teaches kids to memorize stuff and spit it out, not to really make any connections or ties or think critically. And what she said after that was that, well, you know, it seems like like I can think critically and you're a good critical thinker. So, you know, we, we turned out okay, which is true. And that's what I'm saying is we're not stupid. That's not what I'm saying. But there are many aspects of our educational background that affect the way we do think and what we think about and what we know. There are things in basic history that we were just not really taught. How many people, when they were learning about World War II, heard about the court-martial of the commanders in charge of the Hawaiian base and that when they were court-martialed, it came out that Washington was well aware of the Pearl Harbor attack by the Japanese from, I think, three or four different sources, and that was the official finding, that they knew about it, they let it happen in order for us to get into the war. That is, according to official documents, an official government court-martial that's not a conspiracy theory. That's history. That's what happened. But how many of us actually learned that? What about the Founding Fathers and the Constitution? Hopefully you've gone back and listened to that episode that we did on Constitution and the Founding Fathers. But how many people learn that kind of stuff in school? That many of the Founding Fathers actually didn't agree with the Constitution. They didn't want to start up a federal government. They just got out from under one. They didn't want to start a brand new one. And how many people learned that our country was founded on libertarian principles that was nothing like what we see today? The same is true with philosophy, with ethics, with so many different areas, there is a lack of specific things in our education through the education system, if you go through the education system at least, that is state-run, that really hamper our ability to know things and to think things through and to make connections. And that's what I'm trying to focus on here. So disclaimer, I'm not saying that we're all stupid. 
I am just saying that there are some big holes here and that that does have an effect. So let's focus on those and get into this episode on education and what effect the education system has had on us. So in the past, we've gone over the origins and the history of education and our educational system. We have talked about kind of what's wrong with it. But now it's time to talk about what that has led to. What has this system led to? What has it produced? What are the effects on us and on society today? And at the end, I'm going to do a little bit on why that is the case. So we've talked about what's wrong. We've talked about the history, but we haven't really talked about where that came from. Why has the system been set up this way? Why has it evolved this way? It seems like it's a little more than just coincidence. These seem like they're intentional goals, and they are. So we'll talk about that a little bit at the end of this episode as well. And that's before we get into the next few episodes after this one as we get into the history of conspiracy and corruption. And we'll get much more into the who and the why as far as the molding of the education system. And that should be extremely interesting. I am very excited about that one. But today, let's start off with what has been produced by our current educational system and what is lacking. Well, the first thing that I want to cover is the biggest thing, in my opinion, and that would be the lack of the trivium. And we've talked about the trivium before. That, as a reminder, is grammar, logic, rhetoric. So it's about learning the basic grammar of something. If you're talking about language, it's the words themselves and their definitions and punctuation and sentence structure, that kind of stuff. Then the logic, and that would be how do ideas get formed together as you write out a paragraph and a paper, how do different things connect, how are you making different references, and what do this combination of sentences actually mean and what ideas are getting put across, that kind of stuff. And then rhetoric would be how do you actually express your opinions and your ideas and convince somebody of something and get your ideas out there and be able to explain it in detail and clearly. This is rhetoric. And so that's the trivium, grammar, logic, rhetoric. It's been around thousands of years. We talked about it in one of our earliest history episodes on the education system or education in general. And the problem is that that's no longer actually taught in most schools. There are some, and there are many homeschooling movements that deal with uh, the trivium, but it's not common in the typical classroom and state-run schools. Now, the reason this matters is not because of learning how to read and write and make sense of a book and talk about it. That was my basic example of what the trivium is. But this applies to everything. This applies to learning how to learn, basically. How do you figure things out? And the example I gave in one of the previous episodes was working on a car. If you have something wrong with your car and you're trying to figure it out, well, you can look at the grammar of the situation, what the different parts are. There's a few that you probably don't know and look them up, figure out what they do. And then look at the logic of the situation. How do these parts all work together? Then you can get a clearer picture of what's going on. You'll probably have some hypothesis of 
it's either this or it's this because all this other stuff seems to be doing just fine. So it's probably one of these two. Then the rhetoric is how do you apply that and how do you make use of that knowledge? And so you can learn basically how to fix your car. And this can apply to anything. It's a method of learning and a method of applying these things. And it is also a method of spreading information and educating others. If I was going to talk about the education system in today's episode, and all I did was just spout out all the stuff that I think is wrong with the system and the problems with society and all this stuff, and I just kind of go off on a rant about it, and that's all there was, then that would not be very helpful to you. Even if I was very good at the rhetoric side of things, I was very charismatic and got you emotional and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what's wrong. I actually might convince you that way, but I shouldn't. The point is that if I don't have the grammar down and I haven't done all the research about the facts of these different things, and if I don't have the logic down and have a systematic view of how these different things work together and how these historical aspects and players work together to create what we have now, if I don't have those things and all I have is the rhetoric, then I'm not really benefiting society very much at all. And it's the same if I have the grammar and the logic, but I don't have the rhetoric. That was something like Ben Carson, who ran on the Republican ticket in the U.S. election against Trump, his first run. And Ben Carson was actually a fairly educated person when he first announced and Trump had announced and a lot of the main players had announced that they were going to run. Ben Carson was in the lead for a while as far as popularity. However, as soon as the first debate happened, his ratings tanked. No one liked him. And the reason was because he was boring. He didn't have the rhetoric side of things. He didn't have that charisma. When he talked, it looked like he was falling asleep half the time and he was very slow He wasn't very engaging, and you compare that to Trump, and there's your very clear example of what happens when you don't have a good use of rhetoric. And so this becomes a problem when you have society being guided and molded and prodded and led along in a certain direction. Well, what if a few people in society actually wake up and realize that hey, something's going on here, and this isn't right. This doesn't make sense. There's a contradiction here that I see, and they go back and look at the grammar and logic of it. They look at the history, and they look at certain events and certain books and certain reports, and they start tying these things together. They use the logic aspect and figure out how they all tie together, that this group is tied to this group, and that's tied to this report, and there is this declassified document that talked about this, And they start putting all these pieces together. The problem is, if you don't have the rhetoric, how in the world are you going to get that information to other people? You might talk to them about it, but then you just sound like some crazy conspiracy theorist. Even if you have all the grammar and logic, if you don't have the rhetoric, then it's very hard to convince people and get your point across. And if you don't have the even grammar and logic down correctly then there are going to be holes in your arguments. You're going to be talking about a certain instance or a certain event, but they're going to be able to pick apart your argument just because you didn't have a bulletproof system for the presentation of the grammar and the logic of whatever it is you're talking about. And that will ruin 
your credibility for everything you say. And all it was is that you didn't have all the facts down or you didn't tie them all together in the proper way. You just make one mistake on one thing and people discount everything you said. We'll get into fallacies, but that actually is one of the fallacies. And so that's a big problem. And not teaching the trivium in our school system has led to this issue that most people in society don't have the skills of doing these things. They're able to do these things. Most people are intelligent enough to figure all this stuff out. But if they have not interacted with it, they have not had experience with this, they have not done this on their own and done it well and done it often, then that is just not a skill that has been built up. And again, that can be a problem for the reasons I stated. The next thing that I want to mention is laziness. So laziness is a big problem in society today all over the world, and it applies to many different things. It's not just a lack of exercise. It's a lack of being willing and interested in doing a little extra work or doing any work at all. People want to do as little work as possible and get as much reward as possible out of it. If the educational system is built around tests and based on tests, then what students will naturally do is do as little as possible in order to just make whatever grade they want on the test. And maybe that's an A or maybe that's a C. Maybe they just want to pass. Maybe they don't really care. But the point is that they'll do as little as possible to pass the test. And that's it. No more and no less. They're not actually going to learn what the content is. They're not actually going to do a lot of research into it. What they're going to do is probably, this is what I did in school at least, is I would make a list of the key words and the key events and dates and people, and I would just have a short outline on one piece of paper that had a list of names and words and dates and different points that the teacher made that I, I began to see what was going to come up on a test as the teacher was talking. They would make a point and make a clear statement that it just seemed obvious that, hey, that's something that would make the perfect text question. And so I'd write these things down, write down the dates, write down the words. And all I would do is when I go into class on the day of a test, I would glance over this outline and maybe I might study the night before, not usually, but sometimes. And as long as I was aware of what these things were and it was fresh on my mind, then I could spit it out on the test. And that's all I needed. I could make A's and B's that way, and it was no problem whatsoever. And that's all people have to do is just memorize a certain amount of information and data, and that's it. So it's pretty simple. The effect of all this is that people aren't learning things that are useful. They're not really learning much of anything. They're learning how to pass a test. They're learning how to memorize. Memorization is a good skill, but that's not the only skill, and that is not the point of getting an education. So there's a bit of a problem there. Now, we do also see that learning and being smart isn't really cool. And when you're in school, it's the nerds that really actually want to learn something. And it's not the cool kids. The cool kids don't care. The cool kids are rebellious. Rebellion is actually glamorized. These are the kids that are sleeping around and going to all the parties and drinking, and they don't care. They didn't study, and that's 
the stereotype, and the stereotype exists for a reason, because learning and being smart is not what's looked on as cool, and that's the culture of schools today. Now, if you actually think about it, true rebellion would actually be to get a true education, to actually want to learn, because the majority of the kids there are completely lazy, completely ambivalent, completely distracted. And so if you actually want to learn and you are digging into the information, not only is this going to be great for you in the long run, you are going to be a better person and more educated person, probably have a lot more success in life. But in addition to that, that would actually be true rebellion from breaking against the norm. But that's not what they say. Rebellion is just doing what the stereotype of society wants you to do, which is to be a good student and follow the rules. And so if you rebel against that, then you're cool. Well, the reality is when you're doing that, you're actually hurting yourself. You're not sticking it to the man or destroying the system. You're playing right into the system's hands by not actually bettering yourself, not actually educating yourself, not learning how to think or how to learn. And so that's a bit of a problem. You have an issue here where true societal rebellion is not possible without a true education. And so if the majority of people view rebellion as not learning and that's what they do, then how in the world are you ever going to have a society that wakes up and says, hey, this government is completely corrupt. They're stealing my money. I am not going to take it anymore. Look at the American Revolution. That will never happen so long as this is the culture we live in and the society we live in today. And it's impossible to happen without being truly educated. Look at the historical figures, and not even just the famous ones, but if you read letters from Civil War veterans, people that were fighting in the Civil War at the time, they're writing letters back home to their wives, to their families, to whoever, they are actually very eloquent. They had a great use of rhetoric and logic and grammar. If you look at the words they use, the poetry in there, and how they could present these ideas that just it just sounded really good. It sounded like you were reading some sort of famous classic literature book. But you're not. You're just reading this letter from this average guy that's fighting in a war, and that's it. But the point is that these people that we think of as being so much below us and so much behind us, because it was a long time ago, and they probably didn't know much. Half of them were probably illiterate. Well, that's not actually the case. Actually, they were very well educated. They could think for themselves very well. They could present their ideas very well. And that's not really what we have nowadays. So, moving on. Society has become very compliant by nature. We accept the news that we are given. We accept any reports that come out or statistics or studies. We view textbooks as fact without questioning and the experts are always right. And this is a problem because none of this stuff is actually true. Not everything you see on the news is true. There are plenty of times when news stories are changed, and they go back and admit that they got something wrong. That happens much more than you would think. I gave the Pearl Harbor example earlier in this episode well, when Pearl Harbor happened, everybody was told on the news and all the papers that this was an un 
provoked attack, an unexpected attack, and we had to do something about it. Well, then when it came out that, well, that wasn't really the case, we actually did know about it, and at least a certain number of officials, including the president, knew about it and let it happen. Well, that information never really got out there. People didn't actually pay attention, and not many people questioned it at the time. They just heard the news, they accept it, and that's it, because they're very compliant. When reports come out and studies come out, these reports and studies are often used to form policies and legislation, and they're cited. They cite a certain report or a certain study, and we as society generally just say, oh, they've got a study to back that up? It must be true. Well, yeah, hopefully you can see that that may not actually be the case. What about textbooks? Well, Look into who the textbook manufacturers are and how the curriculum in the school system is actually chosen. We'll get into this a little bit in the conspiracy and corruption episodes on education, and you'll see that what is written in the textbook and what is taught as history and philosophy is sometimes a little curated, shall we say. It is not exactly pure history or pure philosophy. It is more a way to mold and shape. And not everything that's in there is completely true, and not everything is in there. For example, let's talk about anarchy. So anytime that a textbook in general is going to mention anarchy, pretty much the only example they'll give is Somalia. And they'll say, well, look at Somalia. They went through a stateless time period and did horrible. They're still a third world country. Their people were starving, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was horrible. It wasn't a good idea. And that is what anarchy is. We can never let anarchy happen because it's horrible. Look at Somalia. But the reality is that there's a little more to the story than those few sentences that are going to be in a textbook. And that's pretty much all the textbook is going to say. They might also mention the beginning of the anarchy movement when there are different assassinations by people in order to, their goal at least was take out the government, and then all of a sudden we just have anarchy because I guess they weren't really thinking it through very much. But those are the things that will be mentioned in a textbook, if anything, on anarchy. The reality is, if you look at the Somalia example, Somalia actually improved after they turned into a stateless society compared to the corrupt society they had before under a formalized government and formal state. So the society actually improved. Not only did it improve, it improved faster than all of the surrounding African countries that were under roughly the same conditions at the time. And so Somalia, when they went stateless, they did better and did better faster than all the other societies around them with formal governments that kept their formal governments. So that's actually not much of a con for anarchy. Now, yes, they're still a third world country. Yes, there are plenty of problems. The culture there is not to let outsiders in. They don't want to deal with foreigners. They kind of want to do things themselves. And there still is plenty of corruption and that kind of stuff. So that doesn't make for a very good free market society with international trade and a wealth of production and all this stuff. That's not really going to happen if you just isolate yourself and aren't open to the rest of the world. So, yeah, they're probably not going to become the next America. But the point is that anarchy did not ruin the country, and that is generally what's presented in a textbook. So 
that's just one example. There are millions of examples. But what you learn in a textbook and what you're taught in a textbook and what's in there is not the whole story. Not only is it not the whole story, there are times when it might not actually be completely accurate as well. So if we are as compliant as many people in society are now, we don't actually question this. And that leads me to the next point of having this kind of monolayer thinking where all we look at is what's on the surface. So if we read a textbook or we're taught a textbook in school, we just assume that it's true. Of course, it's textbook. Of course, it's true. How could it get this far and get into the hands of our class if it wasn't true? Of course it is. Well, if that's as far as we take it, then we're probably not really going to learn very much aside from what they want you to learn. And with that monolayer thinking where all you're looking at is that surface level aspect, what you're hit with first and you accept it and you move on, that leaves a lot out. You're not looking beyond the issue at hand. A good recent example of this was I was at work probably a few weeks ago and talking with a group of guys about politics. And one of them said that, man, I don't understand why we can't just vote all these people out, just vote out all these corrupt politicians, and we just need to vote them out and then get good guys in. And that's what he believed. He believed that politicians and the ones that were in there now are very corrupt and that the American people have the ability to vote them out, and they should, and that's all that we would need to fix society is vote them out and replace them with someone that's good. Well, on the surface level, that makes sense. So with the monolayer thinking that people have nowadays, that makes perfect sense. But if you take it just one step further, how are you going to determine who are the good guys? And when those good guys get in office, what is actually going to change in the system itself, the governance system that we live under, in order to have there be a large shift in how we are governed? Well, there's not going to be really any change in the system, and you are not going to know who's good and who's bad, who's corrupt and who's not. And even people that aren't corrupt, it's usually thought that if you're a politician, you get into politics, you get up to the higher levels, you either fail or you become corrupt. There are very few that stay uncorrupted because it's hard to get anything done. If you want to push through any kind of bill or legislation, you've got to have other people on your side, other people willing to back you up. And typically, the only way to get people to back you up is you back them up on something else. And a lot of this is influenced by getting your campaign funds so that you can get elected to begin with and get reelected. Well, that comes from lobbying firms, mostly, and corporations with their own interests. And even if you didn't have lobbying firms coming after you, well, maybe that person that you're helping out in order to get them on your side on the next bill, they probably did. And so it's just the whole system, it's basically impossible. If the guy at work that I was talking to had just said, we just need to vote them all out, and then stopped there then maybe there would be some change. But as soon as you replace them with another group of politicians, you're just left with the same issue. And that's the problem, is he wasn't really thinking it through to the next level. And this happens all the time. People just make these comments, and they don't actually think them through. They don't take it to the next level. And part of this is because in school, we are not really taught to take it to the next level often. Oftentimes, we are just presented with information. 
We are to memorize it. We are to be tested on it to make sure that we remember it. And we move on. That's it. And that is monolayer thinking. So if the school system is failing and our kids aren't getting educated to the degree that we wish they were, what should we do? Well, raise the budget. We should give the system more money so that it it can actually do a better job at educating our kids. Well, again, monolayer thinking. Yeah, that sounds great at first. You give it more money, they'll do better, and we get better education. Yeah, that's great. The problem is that the reason the system is failing is not because it doesn't have enough money. We throw more money at the education system pretty much every single year, and it gets worse and worse and worse. That's not the answer. Same with the war on drugs. Well, if we just had more money and more DEA officers and more FBI agents and we had more databases that we were tracking and all this stuff, then then we could really stop all these drugs that are coming across the border and that people are using and they're ODing and all this stuff, we can just stop it if we just have more money. Well, again, we put more money to that all the time and we get worse and worse results. The answer is not more money. If you look a little beyond that surface level, there's a lot more going on there. But on the surface level, yes, give them more money. That's the, that's the answer. That's what will fix things. Well, that's how we've been taught to think, and it's not very productive. It doesn't actually work very well. What about the modern monetary theory, MMT? That's getting very popular nowadays with Alexandria Cortez and Bernie Sanders. His economic advisor talked about it a lot, and the idea is that well, does the government need more money? Yes. Do we want to give free health care and free everything else? Well, yes. So how do we do that? We just print more. The government's in charge of the printing press. We can create money all we want, so just do it. It's going to take a whole lot of money to have any significant inflation, and so let's just print it, and then we'll be fine. Well, on the surface level, yes, that's true. The government can just create money, and they could create money to pay for these programs, and yes, that sounds great. But as you start looking into it a little deeper, you realize that we might be a little more at risk of inflation than what they lead on to make us believe. And there might be a little more involved with that. There might be some secondary issues, some unforeseen consequences when you act this way and just print money willy-nilly. Well, yeah, if you stick on the surface level, MMT sounds great. But when you get beyond that monolayer thinking, it's not that great. Similarly, what about free stuff in general? Well, you know, we want free health care and we want a free retirement system, which is Social Security. We want free whatever else you want. I don't know. Maybe you want a free universal basic income or whatever the case may be. The reality is that on the surface, yes, that sounds great. If I could get this stuff for free, then yeah, I'd love it. But nothing is free. Nothing is ever free. Everything costs something. And so if you stay on the mono layer, it's free, everything's great. You might even think that you're going to the next layer and saying, well, yeah, there are people paying for it, but it's the rich. The rich are paying for it. And they've got so much money, it'll cover everything and we're fine. That's still pretty much mono layer thinking. When you move beyond that, you can see, number one, that things aren't actually free. But number two, that if you just get the richest people in society to pay for it, 
that's going to have some more consequences. Well, why are these people rich? Because they've been successful in the economy. What happens when you take away their money? Well, they can't invest it into their own company, their own endeavors, into other companies, into startups, whatever the case may be. What effect does that have on the economy? Well, there's not as much of an injection of capital and investment, so the economy probably won't grow as fast. Not only that, but will people be incentivized to make a bunch of money, to rise through the ranks, to work really hard, to come up with these innovative ideas and products so that they can get rich? Well, no, because as soon as they do, then the government's just going to take all their money and give it to everybody else. So why even worry about it? Why not just work a casual job where you don't do much, you make plenty of money, but you know, no need to get rich because they'll just take it away from you. So what effect does this have when the government offers many free services by taxing the rich? Well, probably not one that's all that great. And again, you go beyond the monolayer thinking there's a lot more to it. And I am just scratching the surface on all these examples. It goes much, much deeper in all these areas. But that's the point is that most people are not going even to the level I'm taking it for these examples. And that's a problem. You're not hearing these types of comments on the news or on normal media coverage, typically. And so that's a bit of a problem. Now, the next issue we have is inaction. So people in society are very conditioned to know their place, to know their role, and to submit and rely on authority. Now, this isn't to say that people are confined to whatever their economic situation is. That's not really what I'm saying. I'm talking about the fact that, yes, most people believe that politicians are corrupt. A lot of people believe that corporations are corrupt. A lot of people believe that the systems we live under are broken, whether it be the Federal Reserve and the fiat money system or the education system or whether it be the underground drug cartels. But the problem is that there's total inaction. Most people believe these things to some degree or another. They usually haven't thought it through all that much. But if you just ask them, do you think a lot of politicians are corrupt? Probably, I would guess, maybe 80% of people or more are going to say yes, probably so. If you ask the question to the average citizen, do you feel like the educational system needs improvement? They're going to say, yes, definitely. And that's the idea, but it stops there. There's no action. It's complete inaction because they won't do anything about it. And the thought is that they can't do anything about it. And if you want to do something about it and you're talking about changing things, then you're just being idealistic. You're being naive. And there's no way things could actually change. Well, yeah. Monolayer thinking, again, that is true on the surface level. But in reality, if let's even say that 70% of people believe these things, well, we do live in a democracy around the world in most industrial nations. And what that means is that people could actually get together and vote for things and change things. Also, if you have 70% of the people in a country all of a sudden just decide that they aren't going to visit a certain company because this corporation is corrupt. Well, that company would probably go bankrupt. They need those customers. They need that market share. They need that revenue. Their stock would start to tank. Their sales would tank. 
and that would have a huge impact. What about government? What if 70% of people in a nation just didn't pay their taxes one year? What could the government do about it? Well, nothing. I mean, that's millions of people. There aren't enough jails to house them, and what would be the point of jailing them? You still wouldn't get your money and Maybe you'd repossess things. How many people would have to be employed to repossess enough goods to make up for the taxes that millions of people didn't pay? Like, it's just ridiculous. There's no way they could do anything about it. So it's not that we can't do anything about it. It's just that people won't do anything about it. It's total inaction, and it goes back to the monolayer thinking. It goes back to being compliant. It goes back to being lazy. And it goes to not having the trivium to rely on to be able to understand the situation, understand the impacts, understand the possibilities, and be able to put them into action. We don't, we don't have that. We have inaction. So we end up with movements in society that don't really have logic and thought. They, if you look at them with the use of the trivium or any kind of critical thinking, they don't really meet up to these standards. So, for example, the Me Too movement. Now, all these, they are legitimate to an extent. And there is plenty of sexism that goes on and sexual assaults that go on. And these do need to be called out. Something does need to be done about this. People shouldn't just get away with that. That is true. However, with the movement in society today, it has gotten to the point where if someone is accused of something then they're generally just thought to be guilty. That, of course, if they're accused of it, then they're probably guilty, and they're having to prove their innocence instead of being innocent until proven guilty. That's a phrase you may have heard before. And so with people thinking and acting the way society does nowadays with all these issues we've talked about and all these results of our education and the way we have been taught to think, this is what happens. We have these movements, and we just make assumptions. We take what we're given by the news just right off the top. We don't really think things through very much, and we just rely on the experts to figure it out. And that's it. What about the green movement? We want to take care of the environment, and we want to make sure that we are not polluting too much and taking out the ozone and our grandchildren are going to die and the whole world is basically going to be destroyed in 20 years because of climate change. Well, that's probably a little extreme, number one. But number two, the answer to fixing these things is not to buy more stuff. You don't buy something that's more efficient in order to fix this problem because you are participating in creating more things. If you already have something, even if it's inefficient, let's say a washer and dryer set, and it's an inefficient washer and dryer set, you can either keep that inefficient model and continue to use it, even though it's inefficient, and then when it goes bad and when it breaks, you replace it with maybe a more efficient model. That would probably be the wise thing to do if you want to be a part of the green movement. However, what we are generally led to do is to go ahead and go out now and buy the more efficient model because if we do this, then we can really make an impact on society. Well, the reality is that in order to build that new washer-dryer set that's super efficient, that had to go through a whole manufacturing process. That manufacturing process is using up more resources, is adding pollution to the air and to the environment in order to make these things. 
anytime you are making new things, you are generally going to have a negative effect on the environment to some degree. And so the best way to handle the green movement is to not buy stuff. Don't buy things. That would be the answer. It's not that you tear down a house that's not built efficiently and build a brand new one. No, although that new house will be much more efficient than the old one, it is unnecessary. And if you look at the overall aspect of everything involved, it's not actually fixing anything. If anything, it's having a negative impact because you're buying more stuff and you are wasting perfectly good resources. And the difference in efficiency is by far not enough to make up for that impact we have through the whole industrial manufacturing process to create that thing. Don't go out and buy a Tesla when you've got a perfectly good Honda Civic sitting in the driveway. Yes, the Tesla gets better gas mileage, but you already have a car. And if you're just going to scrap it and waste it, then you are using more resources than we had to use as a society. They had to build that Tesla. It had to go through a whole manufacturing process, and that does have an impact on the environment. Then you're scrapping your old car. That also has an impact on the environment. And the point is that the answer to the green movement is to stop the consumerist culture, is to not buy things. But the movement we have now, without much logic and thought, is to buy more efficient stuff, is to scrap all your old stuff, throw it away, and start over with something new and efficient, because that's what's good for the environment. Well, again, if you look beyond the surface level, that's not the real answer, and that doesn't actually achieve the goals they say they want to achieve. Moving on to like the all-natural products that you see in grocery stores and Walmart and wherever you go to shop, the term all natural doesn't really mean anything. So just because it says all natural does not mean that it's a healthy product. It doesn't mean that it's unhealthy. I'm not saying that it's all just fake, but most of it is marketing. There's usually an all natural aspect to whatever that product is, but it doesn't mean that it's a great product for the environment and healthy for you too. Not necessarily. What about diets? Well, they're usually fads. Often they're short-lived. And when you see diet food in a grocery store, you might see something that's fat-free or that's sugar-free or no carbs. These things aren't actually healthy. If you look into a fat-free diet, your body is not getting what it needs nutritionally to operate well and efficiently and in a healthy way. It's missing something. Same with cutting out all your carbs. Well, your body's missing something and nutrients that it's supposed to have. It's supposed to operate a certain way. Now, I would say sugar-free, hey, you can cut out sugar, and that's not going to have a harmful effect on your body. However, most sugar-free products and items are replaced with fake sugars like aspartame and things like this. And those have actually been linked to things like cancer and cravings for more sugar. Well, that's not really fixing anything. That's not all that healthy. And so the point is that most of these diet movements are not actually healthy. I used to be into bodybuilding for a while, and when you get into bodybuilding diets, well, you can produce a body that is very lean and very muscular and 
if someone sees that person, they would say, man, they must be really healthy. Well, the reality is they've been able to build their body the way they want to and to look really good, but that doesn't mean that they're actually healthy. If all you're doing is eating brown rice and chicken breasts every day with some veggies, you're not getting all the nutrients that your body is intended to get. You're basically starving yourself at times, and you're overloading yourself at other times, and none of this is actually healthy for your body. So... Again, we've got all these movements that go on through society that spring up and they last for a while, but oftentimes, even though they're based on true things and things that do matter, they're just carried away, they're not well thought out, there's not a lot of logic behind it, and that's a bit of a problem. That's not good. That's not what we want as a society. The next issue to touch on will be our short attention spans. This is a problem in today's society that is not strictly related to the educational system formally, but it does have some ties there. And the problem is that people want to be constantly entertained. People in general can't concentrate or think through complex concepts. They have little diligence for research into sources. They keep up with the news just for entertainment and not for the information itself. So the problem there is that if people aren't actually thinking through complex ideas and thoughts and having debates that they talk about, and when they're in class, they're not learning this way, and instead they're just presented with information that might be flashy and might be entertaining, and the teacher's trying to get their attention so that they'll pay attention and actually learn something, hopefully. Well, that's not actually helping very much, and that ends up reinforcing these short attention spans because kids are constantly being entertained. We have constant access to entertainment through our phones, through video games, through computers, and through that media, we are constantly hit by flashy ads. And we have all this entertainment and color and sex appeal and everything else that's thrown at us. We're bombarded by it every single day all over the place. It's on billboards. It's on the radio. And the idea for these marketers and these companies is to get our attention. That's the whole point. The idea for the teacher is to get the kid's attention. How do you do that? Well, you use these methods. Well, on the surface level, that makes sense. But what does that produce? That produces a society with a very short attention span because they have been conditioned to constantly be entertained, to seek entertainment not knowledge and understanding and dialectic. So that's a bit of a problem that doesn't really produce the society that me personally, that I would say I would want. And so when you have things like debates going on, it's generally people arguing. We talked about this in the divisive politics episode where when you have these controversial topics come up like abortion, then people are generally just arguing about it. And that's it. So someone gets really emotional and probably has a religious angle, then the other person is more maybe feminist movement, and they really are emotional towards women's rights, and then both sides just yell at each other and nothing actually happens because they're not actually getting to the core issues. They're not actually doing a real debate. 
It's strictly just emotions and entertainment. And people watch this stuff to be entertained. I mentioned the campaign for Donald Trump in America and Ben Carson and kind of that dynamic there. It's very similar there. Even beyond the Republican nominations, people had a choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Well, part of what was going on there was that Donald Trump was entertaining. And when people watched these debates and they were watching the news for these presidential candidates, they were watching to be entertained. Donald Trump is very entertaining. Most of the time, he comes across as being a complete idiot, in my opinion. But that's very entertaining. And some of the stuff he says is actually very true. And he calls out aspects that may be very politically incorrect, but are very true. And he presents them in a way that is entertaining, that gets your attention. It's very flashy. And that worked very well for him. He did not spend very much compared to all the other candidates on things like marketing and campaign ads and getting his name out there because he didn't have to, because he was so entertaining and so flashy that that's all he needed. People paid attention to him. When he would give speeches, oftentimes he wasn't actually reading a speech. He was just going off the top of his head. An idea came to him and he just spit it out. And half the time it was completely wrong. But again, most people aren't actually researching into things. They don't really care. Very short attention spans. If it was inflammatory and it made them kind of have that emotional response and they cheer him right along and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably not such a good thing. And this is all stemming from our need for entertainment, our short attention spans. And that's what society craves. The final issue I want to talk about in this section is the usefulness of our education in the education system. And we talked about how learning is not very cool. Well, it's also often not very useful. A lot of times kids aren't really learning things that they're going to use as they go out into the workforce and as they live their lives and start a family and do the things they want to do with their lives. They aren't equipped and they don't have these skills that they need to be very successful at these things. What they are learning is, again, memorizing specific dates and maybe specific events and spitting it out on tests and then forgetting about it. And that's not very useful. And why would they need to know the date that the Civil War started? And how would that benefit them in life? Well, it's not. And it's good to have an idea of history and a timeline and that kind of stuff. And if you actually learn that and actually know it and know how it ties in with other things that were going on at the time period, then that's great. That can be beneficial. But you don't need to know the exact date. And memorizing that exact date is not really going to help you at all. The point is to learn how it ties in with the rest of history and what's going on and what's the rough timeline. What are the trends? What's the flow of history and society? That actually makes sense. That's learning something. But memorizing the date, memorizing the first battle and who won, and memorizing the general in charge, that that doesn't really teach you anything. That's not useful. So when are kids learning about useful things? Well, not often. Usually they're just spoon-fed information from experts and from textbooks, and they spit it out on tests, and that's it. Information in classrooms rarely follow student interest. 
Now, again, sometimes teachers will use things that are flashy and get their attention because you know they want their kids to learn. They want to get their attention. They want to keep their attention. They want to help these kids. That's why most teachers are teachers. They're not evil people. They're not corrupt people. So what's going on here? Well, number one, it's just practically very hard. If you have a class of 20 or 30 kids, how in the world are you going to deal with all those individual interests? What if you're in a history class, for example, and one kid's very interested in the Civil War, one's very interested specifically in the slavery dynamic, and one kid's very interested in the economic differences between the North and the South, and one is very interested in how we were dealing with other countries and what France thought and what Spain thought, and some are really interested in the interactions with the Indians and how that played in during the Civil War, and some were really interested in the philosophies and concepts between why the Civil War is going on and states' rights and that kind of stuff. How in the world are you going to incorporate all these things? Well, you're not. You might touch on each one of these things, and you're going to have to, but that's not going to keep everybody's interest because that's not what they're interested in. If you could focus on maybe two kids that were really interested in slavery, you could keep their attention because that's where their interest is, is in slavery. But with this focus on slavery, you would be able to talk about the differences between the economies of the North and the South and how slavery was related to that. You could talk about other countries' opinions, Britain and France and all these other places. You could talk about that stuff related to slavery, and they would learn about foreign relations and what the other countries were thinking at the time. You could talk about the Indians and the interactions during the Civil War related to slavery. All these things you could do related through a concept that they're actually interested in, and they would probably actually learn because they want to know more about this because this is what they're interested in. That would work. But the problem is, if you did that, then two students would learn a lot and be very interested. The rest of the class probably doesn't care. And so it's really hard practically to tailor a class to everyone's individual interests. So number one, that's just really hard practically. But number two, the information in the classes themselves often are not geared towards giving people knowledge that they are going to need and use in real life. And so it's not very practical and helpful knowledge. How many high schools and middle schools and probably elementary and middle school would be the age range that people learn this stuff in the 1800s. But how many middle schools do you know of that have a class on logic? What about on rhetoric? What about on personal finance or entrepreneurship? All these are very important things. What about web design? What about basic computer coding? Uh, there's just, I can go on and on and on about these things that would be very useful to know. And middle school, those kids are able to learn these types of things, able to learn the basics. When they get into high school, they should be mastering these things. And most high schools don't even have classes on this stuff. Most high schools, at least in America, do not have a personal finance class. Most do not have a class on logic or on philosophy or on rhetoric or on entrepreneurship. And these are kind of core things. Usually, Unfortunately, you have to wait to go to college before you can get access to all this information. Not only should schools have a few of these, schools should be teaching all this stuff because it's very important. 
to our lives, especially in today's society. But it's lacking and it's missing from most of our education system. I will insert another caveat here and a disclaimer. There are schools that are doing a good job at this stuff. There are schools that have personal finance classes. There are schools that teach entrepreneurship and have different programs for the kids to be involved in. There are schools that are elementary schools that have outdoor kindergartens where the kids are learning outside and interacting with nature. And there are schools that do a lot of these things. But most schools in state education systems around the world are not doing a very good job at these things. And again, some of that is for practical reasons. It's very difficult to do that in a state-run school. It's just hard. The, the system is not set up to accommodate those kinds of things, and it's very difficult. Now, I want to get into fallacies, because that's something else that's not taught in schools. If you ask most, probably teenagers, what are some fallacies? What are some fallacial arguments? They would probably have no clue what you're talking about. And so let's talk about that because they do have an impact here. When you really look into most marketing and most debates and things like that, you start to see that there are a lot of fallacies being presented that don't actually support whatever it is that's being presented or being pushed on you or that you're trying to be convinced of. There's often fallacial arguments being made to emotionally get a response and that's it let's do a few examples here so one fallacy would be post hoc and that would be that because b comes after a then a causes b and it's the causality fallacy where just because one event occurs after another event in reality that doesn't mean that the first event caused the second event but oftentimes people will use that in an argument well you know, well, this happened and then this happened. So, you know, we can't do this again because it's just going to cause this again. Well, no, not necessarily. That in and of itself does not solve the argument. That that in and of itself proves nothing. What about the slippery slope argument where there's dire consequences from these chain reactions and it's totally unstoppable. And as soon as you take one more step down this hill, it's a slippery slope. And all of a sudden you're going to be at the bottom and everything's going to go to pot. Well, not necessarily. That is a fallacial argument. That doesn't actually prove any... You can't prove a slippery slope. You can't even get close. It's not even logical. Now, logically, that is a concept, and society can follow certain trends that can be steep and cannot be steep, but there's no guarantee that it's unstoppable, and there's no guarantee you'll go all the way down to the bottom, and there's no guarantee where it's actually headed. There, you need more than just to say, well, it's a slippery slope, and that ends the argument. No, that, that doesn't actually prove anything. What about false analogies? Now, the phrase that would be more common to people would be apples versus oranges. You can't compare those two things. And this happens a lot where people will be arguing about something, and in order to support their argument, they'll use an analogy to something else but it's not an actual direct analogy that doesn't directly involve the same situation, and they're just trying to pull something randomly to support what they have to say, but it doesn't actually prove it, and it doesn't actually say the same thing. Uh, another one would be ad hominem, and this is an attack on someone's character. So if, let's say, Donald Trump running for president, 
and he's trying to be a president and someone says, well, you know, Trump's gone bankrupt in some of his con- companies and he's been divorced multiple times. So, you know, who would want that kind of guy as our president? Well, yes, that makes sense on the surface level. But just because maybe he has some corruption in his past or some failures in business or whatever the case may be, that doesn't actually mean that he would be a bad president. So you, you've got to go a little further than that. An ad hominem attack like that where you just basically say, well, this guy lied about this, so he shouldn't be in this position. That, that doesn't actually, one doesn't prove the other. There, there is a lot more there. So, yeah. Uh, another one would be the either-or argument where you create a false dilemma or a false dichotomy between two things that may not actually be there. You say, well, either we're going to do this or society's going to do that. And yeah, I'd much rather have this than that. Well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But there's no guarantee that those are actually the only two options. And that's probably a false dichotomy, a false dilemma. There, there are probably many other options in between and all around. And you never know what the future holds, blah, blah, blah. But the point is that just giving this false dichotomy of an either or situation, that doesn't prove an argument. Although... It may convince people, but a lot of times that's because they aren't aware of these fallacies because of all these issues that we've been talking about. What about the straw man argument? That's a very common one where someone will be presenting an idea or an argument and they'll basically create what's called a straw man where it's an easily defeated like fake opposition to what they're saying. So if I'm trying to talk about a specific issue and trying to convince someone of something, what I might do is say, well, some people say that blah, 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 and give one argument that's in opposition to what I'm saying. But it ends up being an argument that I personally can totally destroy. And so what I then proceed to do is destroy that argument and say, you know, well, some people oppose it because of this. And then I go on to say, but that's wrong and I can prove it. And I go through the whole list of why it's wrong and totally destroy this straw man. And then that's supposed to convince people that I'm right. Well, the reality is that that straw man I set up was just intended to be an easily defeated foe that I then proceed to destroy. That doesn't actually reflect all of the opposition to my argument. So that doesn't actually prove anything. You've got to go further. What about the red herring? That's a, that's an interesting one because it seems so stupid to me. But that is bringing up a point that isn't relevant or applicable to the argument. And it can either be used as a distraction or maybe it's kind of continuing the mood of an argument. So we might be arguing about gun control and then... I make some statements that may be slightly related, but doesn't actually have anything to do with the argument, at least not of substance. So if we're talking about the curriculum and the schools and the problems with what the kids are learning, well, then I might just make a statement about, well, you know, we've had all these budget cuts and this has been a big problem where, you know, our budget has gone from this to this and I'd go on about the budget. Well, the budget actually doesn't have anything to do with the content of our curriculum, but I might use it as a red herring to distract somebody or, like I said, to continue the mood. So if I'm talking about how bad the curriculum options are and 
how it's not really educating our kids very well. And then if I then proceed to talk about how our budgets are being cut and we don't have the money we need and there's all these programs we want to do, but we can't afford, it continues that mood of, oh man, yeah, yeah, that's wrong. We've got, we've got these major problems. We really need to do something about it. Even though it's just a red herring, it, it doesn't actually apply to the argument. And so hopefully you get an idea of what these fallacies are and maybe you can start to identify that. I would encourage you to do a little research and look up all the different fallacial arguments and all the fallacies and examples of them all so that you can spot them really easily. Because once you know what they are and are aware of them and have learned them, then you can really spot them in just about every place you go. It's in all the marketing and ads that you hear. It's in debates with politicians, it's in speeches, it's in the classroom, it's all over the place. And yeah, it's very interesting once you really start to be able to pull these fallacies out of what you're hearing and what you're being bombarded with, it gives you a lot more power. And you really start to realize how many sources are not actually backing up what they're trying to say. And they're just using fallacies to try to convince people. It's all about controlling perception. I have a degree in marketing, and that was the number one thing we learned was that you control the perception of the consumer, and that is your goal. You can, you are to control their perception. So it's not that you have to necessarily mold a product a certain way, but you have to get them to perceive that product a certain way. That is marketing. And in order to do that, a lot of times you use fallacies because that can convince people because of the situation we're in and how society has been educated and taught to think and conditioned. People are basically programmed for certain things. The worst effect of all this stuff on society, in my opinion, is taking the need to think away from people. The need to think has been removed. We don't have to think about anything anymore because we'll just be told. You don't have to actually read a book because you can just read a summary of that book. You don't actually have to understand much about philosophy because you can go on Wikipedia and get the summary of what the different views on philosophy are. You don't actually have to read the Bible if you're a Christian. No, you can just listen to a few sermons and then you'll understand it. Well, it's just you remove the need to think. You don't actually have to look into current events and do any research on it because the news will tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, and people buy this stuff. It's, yeah. So we have removed the stage of thinking in between stimulus and response. So our society has become a stimulus response society. And that's a problem because when we get a stimulus, when we have input, when we are bombarded by something, presented with something, then we just respond automatically. And that's how we're taught to act. That's how we're conditioned to act. It's stimulus response, stimulus response. We get hit with something, we hear something, and we respond to it. The problem is that we've removed thinking out from the middle of there. And that causes lots of problems because what we need to do is receive stimulus, receive input of some kind, then we need to think and we need to process that. We need to look for fallacies. We need to do some more in-depth thinking. We need to do some research. We need to do things like this. And this can be instant. It can be, you know, you're hit with a marketing ad and then you just think in your head for maybe two seconds and you might 
go through this whole process. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out, week-long research study. But sometimes it can be, and sometimes it should be. But usually it's a quicker deal. But the point is that there's thinking in between. We don't just see an ad that has, you know, a really scantily clad woman that's very attractive, and we see that that's an ad for, I don't know, Burlington Boot Factory or some company, and then just automatically think, oh, yeah, you know, that's a cool company. I'd like to go there. Well, no, you, you think it. It's, it's a fallacy. The, the attractive woman has absolutely nothing to do with the boots that they sell at the store. And so we need that thinking in between there. We don't need to just get this stimulus and be hit by something, presented by something, then all of a sudden react. Although that is how we've been trained and conditioned to act. That, again, is the whole point of marketing, is that in marketing, you present an ad, you present an idea, you present a concept, you present a product, you present a service, you present something. And as soon as you present it, you want a response from the consumer or potential consumer, usually just the target market that you're going after. And that's what they want. They want stimulus response, stimulus response. And it's the same when you get into governance and the government and politicians. They want to say something and get a reaction. We talked about Trump. He's a really good example of all this stuff, or a really bad example, however you want to put it. But he, when he gives speeches, he is very good at this because he knows what statements he can make that will get responses from the audience. So he knows if he says, you know, they should lock up Hillary, that, you know, you're going to get a chant of lock her up, lock her up. And that is something he uses. That is something he's done. And that happens a lot. He's got lots of phrases and lots of things he'll say, you know, drain the swamp and things like that, that will just get these automatic responses from people. He gives a stimulus, he gets the response from the people. And that's what you want, because that's how you control a group of people. That's how you control an ideology. That's how you control society is by removing that thinking stage between stimulus and response. And in general, removing thinking from society as a whole. And this is something behind the scenes. It's not conscious on people's minds, but everywhere you look in society, it's true. Like I talked about, you you don't actually have to look into specific things because you just look at what someone else has said about it. Because, you know, there's experts out there and people have written papers, other people have researched it, so I'll just look at their work and I won't actually look into the source material myself. Well, that that's a problem. I've ran into this a lot with research for this podcast because there's a lot of controversial things I might uncover in my research. And if I were to just look at summaries of, well, so-and-so read this book or so-and-so listened to this interview and said that this is what he said or this is what he meant... Well, I would probably present a lot of stuff that isn't actually true. I I have to actually get into the source material. I have listened to many interviews of specific people for specific events. Like one, for example, is in the conspiracy and corruption episodes we're going to get into. There was something called the Reese Committee that was assigned to look into the foundations like the Carnegie and Rockefeller foundations and how they have influenced 
America and society and if there's corruption involved there and that kind of stuff. Well, I actually listened to about a two-hour-long interview with the guy that headed up that investigation. And so I wasn't actually just reading a summary of what the investigation found. I wasn't reading a report from a news source or an article. I actually listened to an interview of the guy himself talking about the story and what happened, what he uncovered, what his people uncovered, what the climate was like, that kind of stuff. And that's necessary. If I'm going to present true information, I've got to actually go to the source. That's why I've read a lot of these different books that, you know, I could just look at the summaries and the cliff notes. And there are times with some information that I just don't have the ability to go through and look at every single thing. But I try as much as possible. I'm in the middle of reading through Plato's Republic. And that's not necessarily something that most people do nowadays. But, you know, it's important. There are a lot of concepts there. And I've actually learned a lot about what's in Plato's Republic. And I've read sections of it. But I hadn't read the whole thing until now. And so I need to do that. And I am still learning all these things. But the point is... We've got to actually think and we've got to actually get to source material, analyze it ourselves and learn how to process that. That is the trivium. The grammar is to look at all this source material. The logic is put all these different materials together, different interviews, different books, different studies. You put it, how does it all tie together? How do all these things connect? And then the rhetoric, how do I present this information? Because you will uncover important information that most people don't know about because most people don't go through this process. And this can apply again to any subject, to anything you're interested in, and Yeah, I've got to stop here. We're getting a little late. So I do, though, before we stop the whole episode, there is one more aspect that I have to talk about. And that aspect would be that of the, basically, you know, the how did we get here and what has happened. So we're going to get into more of that in the conspiracy and corruption episodes that are coming up. And yeah, you'll, you'll definitely want to hear that. But Let me start off by giving a little introduction with some influential studies and books and people and kind of what's been going on behind the scenes. Like, why does it seem like we have been conditioned certain ways? And why does it seem like curriculum has been set up a certain way? And why do schools teach a certain way? Well, it's not just coincidence. So, Let's start off with a quote from President Woodrow Wilson, one of my least favorite presidents of all time. And he said, We want one class of persons to have a liberal education, and we want another class of persons, a very much larger class of necessity in every society, to forego the privilege of a liberal education and fit themselves to perform specific difficult manual tasks. Well, I think you get the point there. Um, Another one of our kind of founding fathers of our education system would be Elwood P. Cubberley. And I've got two different quotes from him here. And he was actually an educator. He was a pioneer in the field of educational administration. And he was a dean at the Stanford Graduate School of Education in California. And so he was around, uh, his lifespan was at least 1868 to 1941. So 
really when our education system as we know it today was being molded was in his lifetime, and he had a big impact on it. And the first quote from him is, Our schools are, in a sense, factories in which the raw products, children, are to be shaped and fashioned into products to meet the various demands of life. The specifications for manufacturing come from the demands of 20th century civilization, and it is the business of the school to build its pupils according to the specifications laid down. The next quote from him says, Only a system of state-controlled schools can be free to teach whatever the welfare of the state may demand. So, yeah, you get the point there. Uh, The next quote would be from William Torrey Harris, and he was around pretty much the same time period, 1835 to 1909, He was also an educator. He was the U.S. Commissioner of Education from 1889 to 1906, and he was the editor-in-chief of Webster's New International Dictionary. So, again, a very influential person in the education system. And he said, 99 students out of 100 are autonomous, careful to walk in prescribed paths, careful to follow the prescribed customs. This is not an accident, but the result of substantial education, which, scientifically defined, is the subsumption of the individual. So, yeah, it's not just coincidence. The last piece of information here will be from Dewey, which everybody knows about Dewey. You learned about him in school. He had a big impact. And I'm not going to do a direct quote, but I did want to mention something and some things that he brought up in some of his most influential books, and those would be The School and Society, which was in 1899, and then in Democracy of Education in 1916. And in these, Dewey claims that rather than preparing citizens for ethical participation in society, schools cultivate passive pupils via insistence upon mastery of facts and disciplining of bodies, Rather than preparing students to be reflective, autonomous, and ethical beings capable of arriving at social truths through critical and intersubjective discourse, schools prepare students for docile compliance with authoritarian work and political structures, discourage the pursuit of individual and communal inquiry, and perceive higher learning as a monopoly of the institution of education. So... That was a review of Dewey's thoughts and philosophies. So if you put all these things together, you can see that some of the most influential people in forming our school system had some ideas that the education system should be used to mold and shape society in the way that would be best for society as a whole. We've talked a lot in this podcast about the individual versus the collective and collectivist mentality most of these people had a collectivist mentality. What's best for the state and what's best for the people? And what's best in their mind is that they, the elite and the well-educated, should be able to dictate what's best for everybody else and force it on them and train them and teach them and mold them to act a certain way. And that's what's best for society. Well, another source I want to go over is Alexander Ingalls' 1918 book, the Principles of Secondary Education. And I'm going to go over some of the things in there. It's very interesting. 
We've talked about the Prussian education system before, and Engels was a big fan of the Prussian education system and wanted to bring some of those ideas back to the States. Again, this was in 1918, so this was basically during the formation of everything we have now. And in his book, The Principles of Secondary Education, he lays down six basic functions of school. And these are very enlightening here. So the first function of the school is the adjustive or adaptive function. So schools are to establish fixed habits of reaction to authority. This, of course, precludes critical judgment completely. It also pretty much destroys the idea that useful or interesting material should be taught because you can't test for reflexive obedience until you know whether you can make kids learn and do foolish and boring things. And so the goal is to use the education system to make adjustments and adaptions to the minds of children and therefore to society. Number two, the second function of school is the integrating function. So the summary I'm reading here says this might well be called the conformity function because its intention is to make children as alike as possible. People who conform are predictable, and this is a great use to those who wish to harness and manipulate a large labor force. So the integrating function, it is to make individuals and kids and therefore society basically all react in similar ways. This is around the time of scientific management, and we'll get into that in a later episode. But the idea is you want to be able to have statistics and use statistics in order to evaluate society and make decisions. Well, statistical information in general and as a generality upon society only really work if society reacts roughly the same way and thinks roughly the same way and has the same stimulus response reaction as everybody else in society. Because if everybody's just totally different and everybody is totally autonomous and independent minded, then it's really hard to use statistics and general measurements to make decisions because you can't really measure these things because everybody's different. And although everybody is different, the more you can accomplish this integrating function where people are as alike as possible, society is as alike as possible, then the more you can use scientific management to control society and steer society. The third function of the school is the diagnostic and directive function. School is meant to determine each student's proper social role. This is done by logging evidence mathematically and anecdotally on cumulative records, as in your permanent record, which, yes, we all do have a permanent record. And that's what they do is they use testing and they use different class rankings in order to perform this diagnostic and directive function. You have to diagnose what area, what class, what level of intelligence different kids are at, what potential they have, and then you direct them towards wherever you want them to go. Um, I was recently talking with my brother-in-law who has spent a stint in Germany, and he was talking about the schools in Germany, and that this aspect is very evident there because what the state will do is they will evaluate kids at a very young age and put them on certain paths. And so I don't remember the names of each path, but Basically, you have some kids that are deemed to 
go into technical fields, and these will be more manual labor tasks and factory workers and things of this nature, and they don't go to college, they go to trade school. And in Germany, the state pays for all the schooling, and it's all state-funded, and so you get a free education, but it is very directed. So you have some people directed towards the trades, you have other people directed towards uh, more specialized areas and low-level management and that kind of stuff um, that is a little more advanced, and they do need some college for that. So they are allowed to go to college and sent to college, and that's paid for, and they are steered towards that area. Then you have some, a much smaller group of people, that are deemed to be potential for upper-level management, for executive positions, for people that will be the politicians and the power players in society, they get more of an elite education and they are steered towards the elite colleges and elite programs and that's where they go. And so it's this very clear diagnostic and directive function that Germany implements and that's the way they run their society. And it it makes a lot of sense. If you have kids that don't have a lot of management potential, then why would you waste the money in training them for management? That does make sense. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll mention that later. But that's the third function of school. And so the fourth function is the differentiating function. So basically, once their social role has been diagnosed, children need to be sorted by their role and trained only so far as their destination in the social machine merits and not anymore. So it's not that you make every single kid the best that they can be, uh, although you may say that, the goal is really to diagnose what they should be, what you think they have the potential to be, and then make sure that that's where they go. And so, like we talked about, it's very similar to the directive aspect of the diagnostic and directive function, but this is where you're actually differentiating the children and sorting them and making sure that they get in the right place. And so it's, again, very similar to the previous function. The fifth is the selective function. So this does not refer to people's choices, but more to Darwin's theory of natural selection applied to what he called the favored races. So the idea is to help things along by consciously attempting to improve the breeding stock. So schools are meant to tag unfit individuals with poor grades and remedial placement and other punishments, and then make it clear enough that their peers will accept them as inferior and effectively bar them from the reproductive sweepstakes in a sense. And so that's the goal is that you use this selective function to select who are the elite in society. And we're going to talk about Darwin and his philosophies and the whole idea of the elite and eugenics and all this stuff later on. It's extremely interesting. We'll get there. But to basically sum this up really quickly, you have this idea that only a small portion of society is actually evolving, and most of society is not. And that's what Darwin believed and he presented. And that what we needed to do is get this small elite group of humans who are actually evolving and doing well and improving, we need to get them to breed amongst each other in order to improve the human race as a whole, or else the human race as a whole will just devolve. And so you can use the education system, you can use the school 
to help implement this as you know what's labeled here as the selective function. And so you can use that to make sure that the elite are labeled as elite and they are looked on by their peers as elite and people that may not fit that role can be classified that way and viewed that way and have lower prospects for breeding, basically. And so, yeah, that's a little interesting. The sixth function of the school is the propedeutic function. And what this is, is basically the societal system implied by these rules will require an elite group of caretakers and managers. So to that end, you have to have a small fraction of the kids that will be taught to manage this continuing project. Again, it's that same idea. You've got an elite group and you have to have management. You've got to have your elite that are running the show. And so in order to basically watch over and control the population that has now been deliberately dumbed down and in a sense declawed, so that the government might proceed unchallenged and corporations will never never fail, have an abundant supply of labor and people to buy their products. Well, in order to make sure all this happens the way they want it to happen, you do have to have a group of managers, people that manage society behind the scenes and make these decisions, these types of decisions that Ingalls mentions in his book, all these functions, who is going to implement all this stuff? Well, you've got to have a small elite group of upper-level management that can do this. And so the propedeutic function, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the goal of that is to figure out who these people are, and then you quietly kind of select them and steer them and teach them. And like Woodrow Wilson said, you give them that liberal education for the managerial class while everybody else is getting, uh, what does he say, foregoing that liberal education so that they can basically fit into society at all the lower levels. And so you only need this elite group to do that. And similar to the selective function, if you've already selected them, you've already differentiated them, you've already diagnosed, and everybody else has been adjusted and integrated all together, then this all kind of plays together to create what these people believe is best for society. And we may see them as evil, but in their minds, I don't think they're evil. I think what they're trying to do is create the best society possible. Just like maybe people in America might view the German school system as being a little evil or unfair because they're segregating people and telling them what they can and can't do and what they're capable of and not capable of. But I doubt the Germans believe that. They probably believe they're doing a good thing. They're not wasting resources on people that are not going to meet that potential. And they are making sure that the people that can hit a higher potential are getting that training. And so this actually was a very influential book that um, Ingalls put out. And again, right around the time of building our education system. And these were the philosophies that many of the educators and the creators of our system believed. And this was kind of a textbook for them of what the role of the school is. How should we build this? How should we organize this? How do we use this to mold and create the society that we want? Now, the next report jumps ahead many years into the future, and this is the Behavioral Science Teacher Education Program, otherwise known as B-STEP. And so if you are a teacher, 
You might have heard reference to this in your studies when you're in college because it is another very influential program. The idea was it was a federally funded pilot program for an overall education system, maybe a global education system. It's what are the principles that we apply to everyone. So I'd like to read a summary. It seems like a fairly unbiased summary on just a place, an educational resource that has this whole report listed in PDF form where you can download it. And for their just overall summary of what it is, it says, During 1968, Michigan State University developed a basic model and initial curriculum for behavioral science teacher education program, emphasizing the developmental experiences through the first years of teaching. This feasibility study was designed to analyze the human, material, and fiscal resources required to implement B-STEP, examine related issues, specify alternative solutions, explore various alternatives, and recommend a feasible operational model. The introduction provides an overview of the project, and the section 2 details the nature and scope of the program development. Other chapters deal with program development design and the five major curriculum areas with outlines of the personal personnel and materials required for initial development, prototype testing, redevelopment, and continuous evaluation. The third section explores the relevance of the program, considers the impact of a changing society on the program and student attitudes, and analyzes the orientation and in-service needs of the faculty. The fourth section deals with administrative and management structure, including student selection and retention, grading practices, and advisement. The fifth section projects a budget for the five-year period. So this is basically it, and this was also another very influential study that was done and pilot program that was put into place at Michigan State University with the goal of implementing it everywhere. And I want to read some sections of this because it, yeah, it's a little interesting here. So I'm sorry for this episode. There's been a lot of reading and I'm almost done. This is the last, no, this isn't the last one. I want to do one more after this. So hang in there. But It's very interesting, so you should enjoy this. The first section I want to read about says this, and I'm actually just going to read through. I've copied and pasted different sections. I'll mention, I'll reference page numbers um, as I've got them written down, and so you should get an overall idea of what the goal of this pilot program was and what the goals of basically the federal government were in creating this. And again, this was the plan to put for a general education system, at least nationwide, if not worldwide. So to begin, development of a new kind of elementary school teacher who is basically well-educated, engages in teaching as clinical practice, is an effective student of the capacities and environmental characteristics of human learning, and functions as a responsible agent of social change. The humanities are designed to promote an understanding of human behavior in humanistic terms. Students are to be exposed to non-Western thought and values in order to sensitize them to their own backgrounds and inherent cultural biases. Skills, initiating, and directing role-playing are developed to increase sensitivity and perception, 
Stimulation games are included for training and communication skills as leaders or agents of social change. We are getting closer to developing effective methods for shaping the future and are advancing in fundamental social and individual evolution. The complexity of the society and rapidity of change will require that comprehensive long-range planning become the rule in order that carefully developed plans will be ready before changes occur. Long-range planning and implementation of plans will be made by a technological scientific elite. Political democracy in the American ideological sense will be limited to broad social policy, Even there, issues, alternatives, and means will be so complex that the elite will be influential to a degree which will arouse the fear and animosity of others. This will strain the democratic fabric to a ripping point. A controlling elite. The Protestant ethic will atrophy as more and more enjoy varied leisure and guaranteed sustenance. Work as the means and ends of living will diminish. No major source of a sense of worth and dignity will replace the Protestant effort, the Protestant ethic. Most people will tend to be hedonistic, and a dominant elite will provide bread and circuses to keep social dissension and disruption at a minimum. A small elite will carry society's burdens. The resulting impersonal manipulation of most people's lifestyles will be softened by provisions for pleasure-seeking and guaranteed physical necessities. Page 255 was most of that. Systems Approach and Cybernetics The use of systems approach to problem-solving and of cybernetics to manage automation will remold the nation. They will increase efficiency and depersonalization, Most of the population will seek meaning through other means or devote themselves to pleasure-seeking. The controlling elite will engage in power plays largely without the, the involvement of most of the people. The society will be a leisurely one. People will study, play, and travel. Some will be in various stages of the drug-induced experiences. Page 259. Communications, Capabilities, and the Potentialities for Opinion Control Each individual will receive at birth a multi-purpose identification which will have, among other things, extensive communications uses. None will be out of touch with those authorized to reach him. Each will be able to receive instant updating of ideas and information on topics previously identified. Routine jobs to be done in any setting can be initiated automatically by those responsible for the task. All will be in constant communication with their employers or other controllers, and thus exposed to direct and subliminal influence. Mass media transmission will be instantaneous to wherever people are in forms suited to their particular needs and roles. Each individual will be saturated with ideas and information. Some will be self-selected. Other kinds will be imposed overtly by those who assume responsibility for others' actions for example, employers. Still, other kinds will be imposed covertly by various agencies, organizations, and enterprises. Relatively few individuals will be able to maintain control over their opinions. Most will be pawns of competing opinion molders. And that was page 261. So that's all mentioned out of that report, because that should be enough to show you. Again, you have this idea of the elite that 
will run society because they are capable and the rest of society is being molded and shaped. Their opinions are being controlled. Again, this study was done in 1967. And so when they talk about society and individuals being able to be reached and communicated with at all times and tracked by their employers and this kind of stuff, they didn't have cell phones and smartphones the way that we have them today. There was no smartphone in existence or anywhere aside from Star Trek at the time. I don't even know if that was on Star Trek yet. But the point is that they foresaw all these things and that this was the way to basically control society. They make things like policies so complicated that the average person can't understand it, and even the average politician can't understand it. So they have to rely on these experts. You have the rise of the economists and the philosophers and people of that status, the scientific managers and scientists that the politicians rely on, and they rely on these studies and these reports and these programs in order to know how to run society. So again, like it says, the democratic approach in the American sense is not really going to have much of an impact aside from generalities on public policy. But in general, not only do the people not have much of a say and not really understand, but even the politicians won't have very much of a say or understand because it is going to be much more complicated and scientific. And they're kind of going to be poked and prodded and pushed along to certain ways that this elite management group will actually steer them towards. And some of those may be politicians. Some may be corporate elite, like top-level executives or people on the board of directors of different companies. And some might be in the scientific field. Some might be in the educational field, presidents of colleges, whatever the case may be, lots of different people. But these are the elite that will run society according to their goals. Moving on to the final study I want to talk about. This one is very interesting because this moves on to what has the effect been on all this stuff? Because, you know, we've covered all these problems with the education system. And in these most recent examples, we see that most of this is totally intentional and that they believe that that's the best way to run society is by having a certain small group of elite people that are very intelligent, that are very knowledgeable, that are very learned and studied, that they are the best ones to run society and guide and steer us masses in the ways that would be best for us and best for society as a whole. And so with all these issues and with the current education system, what have been the results So, let me read my last long section here. In the fall of 2005, researchers at the University of Connecticut's Department of Public Policy conducted a survey of some 14,000 freshmen and seniors at 50 colleges and universities. Students were asked 60 multiple-choice questions to measure their knowledge in four subject areas, American history, government, international relations, and market economy. The disappointing results were published in 2006. Seniors on average failed all four subjects, and their overall score was, on average, 53.2%. So this was a study done by on 50 different colleges. I think they used the top-ranking 50 colleges in America, and over 14,000 freshmen and seniors were interviewed here, or filled out this study at least. And these are the major findings of this study. 
So finding number one, college seniors failed a basic test on America's history and institutions. The average college senior knows astoundingly little about America's history, government, international relations, and market economy, earning an F on the American Civic Literacy Exam with a score of 54.2%. Harvard seniors did best, but their overall average was 69.6, a disappointing D+. Finding number two, colleges stall student learning about America. From kindergarten through 12th grade, the average student gains 2.3 points per year in civic knowledge, almost twice the annual gain of the average college student. Students at some colleges did learn more per year than students in grade school, demonstrating that it is possible. Finding number three, America's most prestigious universities performed the worst. Generally, the higher U.S. News and World Report ranks a college, the lower it ranks here on civic learning. At four colleges, U.S. News ranked in its top 12, Cornell, Yale, Duke, and Princeton, seniors scored lower than freshmen. These colleges are elite centers of negative learning. Cornell was the third worst performer last year and the worst this year. Finding number four, inadequate college curriculum contributes to failure. The number of history, political science, and economics courses a student takes helps determine, together with the quality of these courses, whether he acquires knowledge about America during college. Students generally gain one point of civic knowledge for each civics course taken. The average senior, however, has taken only four such courses. Finding number five. Greater learning about America goes hand-in-hand with more active citizenship. Students who gain more civic knowledge during college are more likely to vote and engage in other civic activities than students who gain less. The last part will be an additional finding. Number one, higher quality family life contributes to more learning about America. College seniors whose families engaged in frequent conversations about current events and history, whose parents were married and living together, and who came from homes where English was the primary language, all tended to learn more than students who lacked these advantages. So let's go over these results of this study. Basically, it shows that colleges and the education system as a whole are not teaching American history, government, international relations, and market economy. Students are not understanding these things. When they graduate from college, they still don't understand these core subjects. And these are, this is the whole point of the podcast. It's all about economics, education, and government. Like, that's the point. And people don't know it, even graduating from these top-notch colleges. Not only do most students who are graduating from college at top-notch elite universities, not only do they not understand these things and they fail at all these tests, but many actually lose knowledge. That was the most ridiculous part, is that some of the most prestigious universities had the seniors score lower than the freshmen. So when they came in as freshmen, they actually knew more about this stuff than when they left as seniors. That's absolutely ridiculous. And This is what our education system has produced. Now, this was done in 2006, so maybe there's been a drastic change and things are so much better nowadays. Well, I highly doubt it. If anything, I would guess they've probably gone downhill in the past 10 years. So, yeah, I just wanted to show an official study to 
show that this is not just my opinion that America's lacking all these pro- all these concepts and they're lacking this information and this knowledge and the world in general, since most education systems have a lot of this stuff in common, that most countries in general are lacking these different things. It might not be in American history, it might be in British history, or it might be in Australian history, whatever the case may be. But the point is that these are problems worldwide in pretty much every education system, even in the Nordic countries who actually have what's considered the best education system in the world. I actually have a listener that was from, I believe, Denmark. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. I think it was Denmark. is one of the Nordic countries. And I think it was a college student. He said he was a student. And he said that he was surprised that many of the things I talked about in one of the education episodes about the problems with the education system, and I've been talking about America mostly, he said that he was surprised how many of those things were actually true of his schooling as well and his culture in his country. And so I think that would show that even in the kind of premium education systems around the world, which is what the Nordic countries are viewed as, and they actually have some really cool programs and policies. I've, I've studied them because they probably do have the best education system. They have some great ideas and some great philosophies they follow. But even with that, they have a lot of these same issues. The people graduating, going through the system are still trained and molded and conditioned and programmed for certain things in order to have a certain impact on society. If you notice another result of the study said that people that learned more about civics and government, basically all the things they were testing for, participated more in the political realm. Now, that's interesting because if these colleges and the education system, it is not actually teaching kids an adequate amount about civics and kids aren't learning much about civics, then according to this study, they're probably not participating much in their civic duties, which going back to the previous program that talked about basically how democracy in the American sense is not going to have much of an impact in the future. Well, it seems like that's been kind of true that now we see that kids are not learning much about civics. You don't even have civics classes in most high schools. And with that, you don't have a lot of civic participation, which means the impact of democracy is not nearly as great as it ideally would be. So let's wrap up this episode with a quote from H.L. Mencken. He said, The most erroneous assumption is to the effect that the aim of public education is to fill the young of the species with knowledge and awaken their intelligence, and so make them fit to discharge the duties of citizenship in an enlightened and independent manner. Nothing could be further from the truth. The aim of public education is not to spread enlightenment at all. It is simply to reduce as many individuals as possible to the same safe level to breed and train a standardized citizenry, to put down dissent and originality. That is its aim in the United States, whatever the pretensions of politicians, pedagogues, and other such mountebanks, and that is its aim everywhere else. So I think he wraps that up pretty good. So I apologize if this episode was too long for you. I thought about breaking it apart into two, but it just really didn't fit, and I didn't really see the point. If you really want this information, you're really interested, you really like this content, then it shouldn't really matter much to you. You can listen to it in two sections if you wanted. But 
if you've made it this far, then obviously you listened to all of it. So thank you. And I hope that you enjoyed the content. I feel like this was a very jam-packed episode with a lot of different things to go over. And I wanted to present it all. I didn't want to skip over this stuff. So thank you for listening. I want to say thank you for those who have subscribed and rated and reviewed the podcast. We do have a few of those. And I appreciate that. And thank you to our Patreon supporter. And if anybody else wants to support financially, then you can go to patreon.com slash our foundations, uh, the links in the show notes. And there's a few different tiers. The main one's $4 a month, so pretty much a dollar per episode. And you get extra bonus episodes that I'll put out just for Patreon uh, members and subscribers. And that really helps out a lot. I There's more content that I want to put out. I want to be able to do show notes that have links to all the different sources I have. For example, these different studies that I've cited in this episode. And most episodes have things like that, that I want to be able to cite. I want to be able to present for you, give a PDF option to look into that. I want to have uh, our own website and not just the standard hosting website on Podbean. And I would like to on that website have all these resources listed as well so that you can have one main resource to get all the different quotes, all the different studies, all the different, just all the different stuff we cover. I want to be able to have that. But the reality is that takes a lot of time. And personally, in my life, I work a full-time job, I have a family, and I do side work. So I don't really have that time to do all that work. I have enough time to do this podcast and do the research myself because a lot of that I can overlap with other things, but that's about it. If we can get more support or really any support on the Patreon side of things, then maybe I could stop doing as much side work and replace that with this income to actually pay for hosting a specific website and to pay for some of the extra time it'll take to get all that transferred over and all that kind of stuff. So that would be wonderful if you are willing to do that and interested in doing that. And that sounds like something that you would desire and would be helpful and useful for you. Then please consider going to the Patreon page and supporting us even just a small amount to help and to hopefully get to the point where I can do that and I can provide even more content and all these other areas and more to back it up and more resources because I would really like to be able to do that. That's my ideal. For those who are not supporting financially, your support by recommending the podcast and through leaving ratings and reviews and things like that really help out almost as much because that gets more listeners, that gets the word out there, that gives access to this content for a lot of other people that may not have had access otherwise, people that might be searching for this type of stuff. It pops it up in the search results a lot further, and that's very helpful as well. So thank you very much. I appreciate all of you listeners. Please, if there's any comment that you have, if there's any problem that you have with something that I've put out, or you have any opinions, please send me an email. The email address is ourfoundations at protonmail.com, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any requests, then send them out to me. And that's pretty much all we got. So stay tuned next time as we start to get into some other areas and we move into the conspiracy and corruption series that we are going to be doing. This is still technically season one, but 
we've kind of covered our current system. We've done the origins. We've done the history. We've done what our current system is. We've done what the results of that are in today's society. Now we need to look at the why is it the way it is and who was responsible for this kind of stuff, who is actually steering things behind the scenes, what has been the impact of that, what have been their goals, that kind of stuff. We'll go over that. And then we'll get into different alternative movements in currencies like cryptocurrencies and blockchain and education like homeschooling and unschooling, charter schools, things like that and in government, different political movements and stuff like that. So that should be really interesting. And then we'll get into potential futures and what the future might look like for society. So that's where we're going. And I hope that you really enjoy it. So thank you very much for listening. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.